It is great to welcome uh, Reverend Phil back to Redeemer. He is our missionary to South Asia. Phil is a graduate of Covenant College and Covenant Seminary, and he is an ordained minister in the PCA. He's a third-generation missionary to South Asia, and he works primarily in church planting, but also as a mentor and teacher to pastors. He teaches in the seminary and then uh, walks with pastors as they develop new churches and helps them through that process. Um, he helps plant one church, and then as soon as that church is established, he goes and starts another one with a local pastor and mentors that man until that church is ready to stand on its own, and then he goes and does that again. And that's uh, what he's been doing for some years with some great effectiveness by God's grace. Phil is married to Amina, and they have three young daughters. And Phil, it's a wonderful pleasure to have you here again. And thank you for making this weekend a priority. And welcome back to the pulpit here. Good morning. It is good to see each of you again. And uh, I feel like this, in many ways, is a, a church family that we are part of. We were here this summer as a family, very briefly, and then uh, this time I came on my own. My family is back. Pray for them. They are happy and enjoying their time without me. I'm not sure why, <laughs> but I'm trusting and praying that God is providing for them good friends and many activities to be part of, so uh, thank you for uh, welcoming me back again uh, this weekend. As you've heard, it is our mission focus here at Redeemer. And uh, you all have been involved in many ways, and it's good uh, every year to come together at a certain time and think about missions and what it means for us. And so our theme uh, that you all have selected is um, why missions? Uh, I mean, what, why are we doing what we are doing? And uh, if you were here at the dinner on Friday, uh, you heard me speak there, and let me just very quickly say a few things. I told you, I told us, that uh, missions is a logical implication. If you love God, you will share that love with other people. It's really quite simple. This passage that we're looking at is all about following the logic, and so we're going to talk about that. I also said that uh, why should we do missions? One of the main reasons, the first reason really, is that that's the heart of God. That's who God is. He is a God who displays his goodness to us, to the world, he created the world and made it good. And then when we are reconciled to him, we see his goodness. We see his love for us the way he has an outward trajectory of his goodness. And then the logical flow of that is we also receive his love. And now we have security. Now we have that joy. Now we have peace and, and understanding and then the natural, logical flow is to be outward focused, to display that love towards other people. And so I want you to, uh, again, consider the logical implication, follow the logic of God's goodness and what it means for us to be people who display his goodness everywhere. That's what we're called to do. Listen as I read 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 11 to 21. I'm reading it uh, from the ESV as you have it in your bulletins. This is God's word. Therefore, Paul says, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that 
you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearances and not about what is in the heart. For we For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, and therefore all have died. And he died for all, so that those who might live would no longer live for themselves, but for him who, for their sake, died and was raised." From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is God's word. Would you join me in prayer as we continue? Father, this morning we look to you again. We thank you for this great reconciliation that you have brought into our hearts, into our wills, into our lives, into our families into this church. Father, we are grateful for your work as we've just read. It is from you. We are amazed. We ask this morning that as uh, we hear your word, it would be indeed a challenge to our hearts and to our minds and to our wills. Father, may we respond in a way that advances your kingdom. This great ministry of reconciliation, may it go to the ends of the earth through us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, invitations are a part of life. We give invitations, we receive invitations, and where I live in Asia, there are two kinds of invitations, basically. There are those that are fake, and there are those that are genuine. And maybe a few in between, I'm not sure, but those two categories. A few uh, months ago, we had a visitor come to our gate. Every house in India has gates, and I heard the tuck, 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 a little ways from our house on the gate. And so I looked out and wasn't sure who was there. I wasn't expecting anyone. And so uh, I looked through the other window where we can see who's standing at the gate. And uh, I said to my wife, I said, honey, it looks looks like the Sings are here. She said, who? I said, the Sings. And I said, do you know why they're here? And she said, no. And I said, well, let's go welcome them. Do you want to go? And she said, well, what are they doing here? And uh, I said to her, well, you saw them. They were new people that had visited the church. And uh, I said, you saw them this morning, and you were talking with them. And uh, I said, Amina, I think 
I think maybe you invited them here. And she said, I know. I invited them, but I didn't think they would come. <laughs> my genuine, uh, my, my invitation wasn't genuine. It wasn't real, right? So we, we make invitations like that all the time. Oh, come on over. Yes, yes. Oh, oh, we'll come and visit you. Yes, yes. But we never really intend to follow through on that invitation. Or we don't think people will follow through on our invitations. This morning, we have a passage that is more than an invitation. And it's more than genuine. It is an appeal, I would say. It's one of the great missionary passages. The Great Commission says, go into all the world. But this passage, the greatest appeal, is really, in a sense, saying, I'm not just inviting you into the kingdom. I am imploring you, as Paul says. And we, therefore, are to implore other people. That's what Paul says. He says, we are not just inviting you. We are going out and begging and asking. And it's a convincing, emotional appeal. And so this morning, that is... The title of my sermon, Reconciliation is the Greatest Appeal, and we are the ones who are to be a part of that appeal. Paul says, we have this ministry, it's an ongoing lifestyle, not just for those who go to far places on behalf of others who send, but this appeal is for all of us, all believers And he says, we talked about this on Friday night very quickly, if you fear the Lord, that's not just missionaries, that's all believers. And we said that fearing the Lord is to know what God could do. We know who he is and his almighty and and he's righteous and holy. And then we know what he should do to us. Personally, we just confessed our sin. And if we are honest with ourselves, we know he should actually let us be separated from him because of our sin forever. It's personal. And then we also know what he did do through Christ. And I want to just very briefly, before I go to my three points, I want to talk about this beautiful doctrine of substitution. And that is the heart of the gospel that we take in this ministry of reconciliation. He says in verse 14 and in 21, it's kind of at the beginning and at the end. In verse 14, he says, for Christ's love compels us. We'll talk about that in a minute. And then he says, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. This idea that Jesus Christ died for all those who would put their faith in him, And therefore, all of us, we now have had that death sentence removed. And so, you know, in this sanctuary, there's no altar here. And that's very intentional. There's a table, but there's no altar. Because Jesus got the altar, we get the table. Isn't that a beautiful thing? That's this doctrine of substitution. And Paul refers to that. And then it's even more. Uh, At the end of the passage, he says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He gets the altar, we get the table. Jesus Christ, who had never sinned, took our sin, this substitution, so that we might become the righteousness of God. Let me just talk for a very brief second. What is this righteousness of God? Well, of course, it is doing right things. 
It is standing clean before a righteous God because Jesus Christ now has removed the debt and has given us his right doing. We're able to now please God. But, you know, I think it's even more than that. The righteousness of God that we are becoming is kind of like all of the goodness that God is and wants to display, all of his good purposes on this earth, that is the righteousness of God. Now we're not just trying to avoid right and wrong. Ooh, got to be righteous. Don't want to be wrong. Don't want to do sin. Got to be righteous. It's not just that. It is that. We stand clean. But now God's good purposes all the way back to the garden. It's like we're back in the garden where God is looking at creation saying, these are my good purposes. Fill the earth and subdue it. Go out and spread my goodness all around this world. Make the whole earth into a garden. The righteousness of God that we have become are his good purposes. All of the meaning and purpose and beauty and wonder. and It's eternity, but it starts now. We are the righteousness of God. I don't know about you, but that excites me. That's the heart of Reformed theology. Now we can enjoy the world from the perspective of kind of like we're back in the garden. We haven't been kicked out. Jesus was kicked out for us so that we can be back in. And now we are accomplishing the good purposes of God Almighty. So this substitution doctrine is really what he's saying. And if you have experienced that kind of reconciliation, you know the love of God. It's profound. It's deep. It's personal. And so now let me just give you three applications as we continue. First of all, motivation, attitude, and tone. Paul is saying in our ministry of reconciliation that we conduct to other people, all people, whether we're here or overseas or anywhere, we are doing three things. If God has reconciled us to himself, then first of all, our motivation has to be true and it has to be right. That's what Paul's saying. He says, now the love of Christ compels him in the NIV, controls him in the ESV. And what is he saying? Well, I believe he's saying that now what he does, he does not because he's forced to do it. You know, so many of us do things because we have to. We don't really have an option. Children, sometimes you do the right thing because your parents are watching. Maybe there are cameras in your school or in your house. It's like, I am kind of have to do this because I know I could get in trouble, right? But Paul is saying he's motivated not because of that. He does it because he wants to. He does it because now he's controlled by not external forces. He's controlled by an internal motivation that just flows to the core of his being. He knows who God is, how good he is, and how he's displayed his goodness to him. And now he wants to display that goodness to others. It's an internal. And it's not like a bond. You know, at our seminary where I teach, uh, we sponsor. In fact, you help sponsor the students that come. And we say, if we pay your way for two years, you're going to need to serve in a seminary or a presbytery or a church or some way for two years. Because we paid for you, now you kind of owe us. (laughs) And, you know, oftentimes I don't like the students that are fulfilling their obligations because of a bond because you know how it often goes not always it often goes like okay thanks for the money but now I've got to serve with you I'll put up with it just because I have to and I'm fulfilling my bond right Jesus died for me and so now I got to die for him oh boy here we go I'll put in my time but that's it Paul's saying that's not his motivation it's not a bond and you know what he's saying is it's not a duty either. 
He doesn't feel pity for people. He's motivated ultimately that he has experienced God's love and now he gives it. It's kind of like back in 2004 when my wife and I were, had just been married and we had the privilege of coming to visit you here. I remember that visit very well. <laughs> and I don't think you had this building here. Um, we were meeting in a small place. But from here, we went on out to the Grand Canyon, just Amina and me. And as you know, she's from India. She hadn't been to the States, and everything was like, wow, wow. So I took her to the Grand Canyon, and we got a hotel just at the edge. And I remember the first day, we got there at night, and the next morning, I took her out, and I said, Amina. And I just went to look for myself. I'm like, wow, there it is this huge hole in the ground that has been made into this beautiful carving of God's goodness and beauty. And I, I, I said, Amina, come on. I got her out of the car. I'm like, I couldn't wait to have her come and for the first time experience standing at the edge of this beautiful canyon. And we do that regularly now at our home. We look at the Himalaya Mountains, and there's a storm that comes through regularly, and the rainbow comes out. And one of the things that gives me the greatest joy is our family. My kids now do the same thing. I say, hey, there's a rainbow. And we come on out, and, and we gather on the veranda, and we look at it and see how far it goes. And now my kids do that to me if they see it first. That's mission. It's seeing the beauty of God, and we want to well up and bring other people along with us. That's what Paul is saying. He's motivated because of the beauty. And then he goes on and he says, now we are not able to have a self-centered motivation in verse 15. And he died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. You see, now we're able to not be selfish. Before, we were just selfish. We were looking at things from our own perspective. And now we're able to give to other people. And so, you know, as you think about mission and mission trips and mission activities and your mission giving and your mission prayer, so often our activity in missions becomes more of a performance rather than a passion that we pursue. Paul is saying, this is my passion. It's what I love. It's internal. And I've just got to act on it. I've got to bring other people along with me. And that's why he says, uh, in verse 13, if you remember, uh, if we are out of our minds, I'm reading from the NIV, as some say, it is for God. What's he talking about? Basically, people were getting all bent out of shape because Paul and Timothy were a little bit fanatical. They were kind of talking and imploring people and kind of going a little bit further than most people would like. And so they're saying, man, these guys are crazy. And Paul's saying, you know what? That's all right. If people think I'm crazy, that's fine. I'm doing this for God. So in other words, he, he's saying before that, I want you to boast in me. He's not saying boast about me. He's saying boast about what I boast about. Because I'm so excited. And now Paul says, I am even willing to let people think I'm a fanatical goofball, maybe. Or crazy man, he says technically. And what's the point, what's the point for us? Well, we don't have to go and act crazy, but we do have to display this radical love, and that should be what motivates us. Paul is saying, I'm motivated by that, and so it's okay what other people think. The application is this. You and I should be willing and glad to take risks. What might that risk be for you? Maybe it's the fact that you're needing to give some time. Maybe you need to 
be willing to maybe have people think less of you and maybe it's going to be shameful in some ways, you know? Sometimes I go and I feel a little bit ashamed, but I have to say, of course, if it's because of my own mistake, I need to repent. <laughs> but if it's for the sake of Christ and people are thinking I'm a little bit crazy, then I, that's all right. I'm willing to be put to shame a little bit for that purpose. Maybe it's money. You know, you're not willing to part with something that's so valuable so that this great cause can go to your neighbor, invite them in for a meal that costs money, time. Maybe it costs money to go to the ends of the earth. You all have been so gracious to us and we are so grateful to you, but maybe not all of you are right on board with giving of your finances to world missions. Maybe it's your comfort. Maybe it's just a bother for you. Paul says, that's okay. I am willing to do this even if people think I'm crazy. Are you willing to take risks? I hope you are. What risks might be stopping you from involving yourself in mission, both locally and around the world? Paul says he's motivated by the greater glory. The fact that he sees God's goodness and God's goodness, and he wants to display that to the ends of the earth. Is that what motivates you to give? We need to ask ourselves regularly, why are we doing this? You do something good, and you know the problem is not, do I need to do something good? The answer is, of course, yes, right? The problem more for probably most of us is when I do do something good, as I'm doing it, and maybe after I do it, I kind of say, well, that felt good, and now a little bit of self-centeredness comes into the motivation for why I'm doing it. So the next time I do it, maybe I'm doing it more because I got a little affirmation the first time. Now I'm going to do it again because of the affirmation for myself. We need to challenge ourselves and say, when we keep doing good things, why am I doing this? Go back to the answer that Paul says, because the love of Christ compels me. Because I've experienced God's love in here, that reconciliation in some fresh way now, maybe as you think about a relationship that you have and, and God's brought reconciliation, praise the Lord for that. Let that be the motivation then that you go out. Continue to ask yourselves what motivates you. That's number one. Number two, um, because God has reconciled us to himself, our attitude changes. And I'm thinking primarily what I think Paul is thinking about, the attitude towards people and the world. And so now he says in verses 16 and 17, if we see, from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view, though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. What's he talking about? What he's saying, I believe, is that before he was converted, before he understood this reconciliation in his own heart, before Jesus Christ came to him on that road and said, I am Jesus who you're persecuting. And he then got to understand God's love for him and the truth of that gospel deep down. Before he used to see everyone from a worldly point of view, from the flesh, I think in the translation we read. What he's saying is, the way the rest of the world has to be able to put other people in categories, that's all he was doing. And so when Jesus Christ came into the picture as a man who was attracting attention, preaching about himself and the kingdom of God, he only saw him from the world's point of view, without the Holy Spirit, without the truth of the gospel. So what did he think of Jesus? Eh, the guy's out there just promoting himself and trying to get rich, just like the rest of us people do who don't know God. He thought Jesus was a little bit crazy, a little bit of another religious man that was doing this for his own, you know, to make money or something. 
But then he says, no, no, no. I realize that he is the son of God, that he is going to do that great substitution and take the altar so we get the table. And now I realize he did that for me and for all those who would put their faith in. Now I do not regard him in those categories anymore. And then he also says, and we also don't view other people according to the world standards. Well, what are the world standards? What do we see? Money. Huh. They live in a nice big house. They have a fancy job. They get to go here and there. and They do all these things that, you know, riches. That's what we see. And so we put people in a category. If you've got this, you're great. If you don't, you're not great. Uh, talent. Great talent, we want to be next to them. And I see it maybe in a different way. It's the same all around the world. But when you go to a different culture, you see it differently. A lot of people see us and want to be part of our ministry because of the worldly perspective. We've got money, they think they could tap into that, right? Or maybe we've got education. Maybe we've got talent. Um, you know, we see other people based in these categories. Race, that's huge. And that deeps, that goes to the core of our being. We see other people and we think, oh, they're from there. They're from that part of the world. And it's in our church over there as well. They're from that tribe. Oh, you're from where? Oh, that state down in the south. And you know what they're thinking. They're basically comparing, going, where do I fit in? And so the view of other people becomes through our self-centered eyes. That's what Paul's saying. The world sees everybody and they put them in a category and we're trying to always measure up. But you know what the gospel does, what Paul is saying. Now I don't do that anymore. I see them all equally. All races are the same. And as in Galatians 3, 28, Paul says, there's neither Jew nor Gentile. There's neither, you know, people in the camp or outside of the camp. There are people now, it's not races. It's not male or female. Um, it's not slave or free, you know. I'm the wealthy, you're the not wealthy. And now we are all one in Christ. And so this beautiful picture of all people are made in God's image and are now at a place to where they need reconciliation. And so he sees them all equal. What's your people attitude problem? That's what Paul is saying. That's the challenge for us. And, you know, some people say, well, I don't really struggle with race. That's, you know, I like everybody. I like every culture. And I say as a missionary, I go there, and I thought maybe I was kind of clean of that. <laughs> but I realize I'm not. I'm really not. I have categories, and I see certain people. And on the surface, I look at them, and I go, I want to try to measure up. But then I go, the love of Christ compels me. I can't measure up. I can't try to be somebody comparing to them. They are people in God's image, and they need the gospel as well. And also the world. The world, actually, we are told by Paul and many other authors in Scripture that the creation was subject to the frustration, Romans 8, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. What's it saying? It's saying that the world also is waiting for us to bring reconciliation to it. Not only all people, but the earth and creation. That's why we're involved in things like trying to make the world a better place. That's one of our projects. Trying to help all people come out and we're trying to meet them from whatever background and race they are. And we're trying to help them see that we also are concerned about this earth. 
because our reconciliation to God means that now we are making things right on earth. Not just with people, but with creation. That's our great calling. And so our attitude towards people has to change, and we see them now as people who need the gospel. And so we can ask questions like this. We should be asking questions like this. What is missing in my relationship with God or in their relationship with God that has caused this particular problem? And so we go somewhere and we say, oh, there's a problem. Poverty, trash everywhere, uh, injustice. People are treated in a particular unjust way. And so the question should be, what is wrong with their, and maybe I had the same problem, what is wrong with their relationship to God that has caused this brokenness? That's our job as those who are invested in mission, whether it's here and it's maybe in some ways more challenging over there. Because we're asking, how can we solve this problem? And a lot of people want to go and find an earthly way to solve the problem. Let's just give them more money. Well, the heart of the problem is not money. It's they're broken in their relationship with God. And so that has to be part of the solution. How can the gospel be part of the good that I'm bringing them? Because ultimately, Paul says, they need this reconciliation. He implores them, be reconciled to God. And your problems also will begin to be solved. So that's what we need to continue to think about. Now, first of all, our motivation has to change. Secondly, our attitude towards others and towards the world changed. But thirdly, very briefly, if we've been reconciled to God, the tone of our message changes. And that's one of the things that as I read this passage over and over again, I am absolutely just amazed at. And I'm going to read it again, kind of hopping through. I want you to see certain words. And I want you to see uh, kind of the tone of what you think Paul is teaching and preaching to others. I almost don't want to say preaching because that kind of gives a category that missions is only preaching. It's not. It is that, but it's so much more. I want you to see the tone of how he interacts with people. In verse 17, he says, we try to persuade other people. Okay? I talked at the beginning. It's an invitation. It's like, hey, come on over. But now it's more than that. It's like I've been told by many people in our church, no, no, no. Not just all try to come. You have to come. I've had people look at, my, look at me and point the finger and say, you've got to come to my wedding, my daughter's wedding. You have to. Paul's saying, we persuade people. Do you see that? And then in verse 12, uh, but we are giving an opportunity. It's kind of like you see this great beauty. And it's like, no, 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 no. You're getting something for free, this great substitution. It's an opportunity. It's not just an invitation. And then uh, in verse 14, for Christ's love compels us because we are convinced He's not doing this just because it's a profession. When my missionary activity becomes just a job, I want you to call me into your office, Tony, and say, you know what? It seems like it's just a job for you. It's not a job. It, it is a job, yes. But it's more than a job. It is, I am convinced. It's an inward motivation. And then he says, uh, it, again, reconciliation four times. Verse 18, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And then verse 19, that God was in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. 
Do you see the beauty of this and the forgiveness that you've experienced? And now you want them to know that this can be true for them also. You persuade. You convince. And then uh, verse 20. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. And this is just a staggering. uh, You know, you could think about this all afternoon long. This phrase here. As though God were making his appeal through me. Really? God is making his appeal to all people on earth to say, be reconciled to me. He could use all kinds of ways to do that. He is through creation and, and through the storms, and, but he's doing that through me. What a beautiful thing. What a privilege. And then this beautiful phrase in verse 20, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled. We implore you. That is a powerful word. Basically, it's not a scolding. You know, where I live, um, in our schools, unfortunately, my daughters have to put up with this, sometimes from their teachers. It's a great school, Christian teachers, but they've been sort of duped up in this culture. And the culture basically says, we're going to try to convince people by scolding them, yelling at them. No, 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 don't do that. And almost making a mockery out of them. And so my children hear scolding, they hear insults. You never do that right. Now do it right. But Paul's saying that's not what he's doing. He's not trying to sort of badger people into hearing the gospel. And that's one of the things I love at this church. If you haven't been here for a while, you hear the gospel so winsomely put from the pulpit and from friends, from elders, from everyone, from the children. I heard it on Friday night. You know, the tone of our message is not scolding. It's not insult. And it's not even a threat. I once had a friend who basically on the front of his car. He was a very evangelistic man, a a godly man, a great guy, a good friend. But I did not like his approach to evangelism. (laughs) Because on the front of his car, he put in big letters, where will you spend eternity? It's kind of like a threat, right? It doesn't seem that Paul is doing that here. He's saying more, I've been reconciled. And I, I am compelled by how God loves me. And that's an ongoing motivation. And I implore you now, would you get in on this? Would you receive this reconciliation? It's a winsome appeal. It's loving. He persuades. He reasons. He doesn't badger. You know, and it's also kind of not the other extreme. It's not just, well, we present the truth and let them decide. Yes, they all have to decide. That is true. It's not just putting the truth out there. It is saying, here's the truth now, brother, sister, mother, father, child. Would you see the beauty of the gospel and how God has brought you to himself in Christ? Would you be reconciled? And then the natural, logical flow is bring other people into that. Don't just invite them, but implore them. Be reconciled. Let's pray. Father in heaven, this morning we come to you and we thank you for this great appeal. We thank you for the treasures of the gospel. We thank you that you took the uh, altar where death would take place and you gave us the table where everything good, the feasting and the joy and the meaning and the purpose and, and the demonstration of your love for us. Oh, Father, we are grateful. 
Father, when we would slip into this self-righteousness, when we would slip into the, the looking at other people through the eyes that the world does, what, Father, would you forgive us? Help us to identify those core sin areas in our lives and the attitudes that are not right. And may we say, Father, thank you for your reconciliation to me. I don't deserve it. And would you enable us to then be people who display your goodness all around to those who need to hear it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.